0: Welcome to Supersized Science, where we feature research and discoveries nationwide enabled by advanced computing technology and expertise at the Texas Advanced Computing Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jorge Salazar, a science writer at Tech. Plastic waste is a big problem in the environment. About 300 million tons of plastic waste are produced every year, according to the United Nations. Much of that is polyethylene terephthalate. PET, a plastic in single-use bottles, carpets, and clamshell packaging. In the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency estimates annually that only about 29% of PET bottles are recycled. In 2016, Japanese scientists discovered that the bacteria Idianella sakaiensis had evolved digestive enzymes called PETase that break down PET. And in October of 2020, a study came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It used supercomputers allocated by Exceed, the Extreme Science and Engineering Discovery Environment, funded by the National Science Foundation. They revealed more about a sidekick enzyme called Metace that helps Petace break down pet plastic. Stampede 2 here at TAC. Comet at the San Diego Supercomputer Center and the Eagle system of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory were used in the PETACE MEDA study, while dealing with plastic pollution at scale remains daunting. In the words of Jeff Goldblum's character in the movie Jurassic Park, life finds a way. On the podcast to talk more about their study are co-authors Brandon Knott and Erica Erickson, both scientists at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory where Knott is a staff engineer and Erickson is a postdoctoral researcher. Doctors Knott and Erickson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great pleasure to be here talking about this.
2: Would you tell us a little bit about a study that your team has worked on that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, basically looking into the the chemistry of how nature, uh, how natural microbes um, have evolved to break down plastics. What are some of the main findings of this study?
1: Yeah, I can go first, though. Erica can definitely um, speak a lot to this question as well. About five years ago, there was a a landmark study published from a Japanese group in Science Magazine that inspired quite a bit of research that has followed in the last five years, including from our group. And uh, a couple of years ago, our group published a paper on the PETase enzyme, this enzyme that will work on and depolymerize PET, polyethylene terephthalate. And this most recent study really focuses on its partner enzyme, which you could call MEDACE or mheadase, which works on one of the breakdown molecules that headase produces. And MEDACE working together with PETACE, these two enzymes form a cocktail that can break the polymer PET all the way down to its monomer building blocks. Uh, so the latest paper is really focused on that sort of partner enzyme medase, which works on the smaller molecule to get all the way down to the building blocks. And uh, the work that we presented in the paper includes crystal structures. So looking at the structure of medase, and we do some comparing to pedase, there are some aspects in which they are quite similar, including their catalytic residues. Uh, But there are other aspects where they're quite different, which leads to them having different substrate specificities. Um, We also do quite a bit of biology and biochemistry to look at how these enzymes work separately and how they work when they're together. Bioinformatics, looking at possible uh, evolution of this metase enzyme and also molecular simulations. And then finally did some work actually covalently binding the two partner enzymes together and then looking at the effect of that as well. So it's quite an interdisciplinary team uh, that worked on it and coming at this uh, enzyme and this enzyme cocktail from quite a few different angles.
3: Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. That's a pretty <laughs> pretty thorough description of the work that we did for this paper.
1: It sounds like a
2: tag team effort between the pedace kind of uh, uh, breaks does the rough um, the rough work and then the the comes in and and does the, um, it breaks it down even further. Would you speak to this relationship a little bit between these two enzymes and how they work together?
3: The initial enzyme that Brendan was mentioning that we released a, a study on in 2018 definitely got the biggest splash as well from a social interest perspective. So the general public is super interested in this idea that maybe there are natural systems out there that can start to break down plastics that were specifically designed not to be broken down in the environment. And... In this particular organism, Ideonella sakaiensis, that was identified in the recycling facility, it's a two-enzyme system. Very likely, these two enzymes were co-opted towards this ability to degrade plastic from another function that they had naturally. So whether that's to break down biomass of some sort or another way to gain a sugar source or a nutrient source in the environment... Because polyethylene terephthalate looks similar enough, it's not very similar, but it's similar enough to some natural polymer that they may have encountered. uh, These enzymes have evolved over probably a very short amount of time to be effective on a plastic instead. And so in this case, it's a two enzyme system. The first that can attack the solid substrate and break it down into smaller bits. And then a second piece of that puzzle is the M enzyme, and that will take those smaller bits. They are still not able to be catabolized and, and used as energy or food uh, into a compound that can be. And so in this case, that's terephthalic acid. And there are a few other organisms out in the world, in the wild, that are able to address this compound. So partly as a bioremediation effort that's of interest, but also as a way for this to be a nutrient source for an organism to grow. That's kind of how they're working together in a partnership.
1: I would only add just part of the outcome of this paper, which was pretty pivotal was quantifying a bit how much does medase help pedase in terms of how much PET is broken down. And by adding medase into the mix with pedase, PET is broken down twice as well. And then as I mentioned that the chimera enzyme where they're covalently bonded together, you get another factor of three improvement in PET depolymerization. polymerization. So altogether going from pedase alone to the chimeric enzyme, you have a six fold improvement uh, in terms of PET depolymerization. So, the quantitative aspect is also something that's reported in this uh, most recent paper. Um, and in terms of the details of exactly why those improvements are seen and exactly how they're working together, there's still a lot left to learn.
2: Well, what you have shared with us today is uh, it, it just sounds extremely hopeful. Um, um, that nature always finds a way to deal with what's out there. Uh, and we um, uh, attack and exceed the NSF-funded extreme science and engineering discovery environment. We covered research uh, on PEDES, like you mentioned, um, uh, back in 2018, uh, where we spoke with uh, Lee Woodcock and uh, Greg Beckham, uh, also at NREL. And they, they had just solved the structure of this ace Would you maybe um, uh, just... Uh, just run us a quick, uh, in a nutshell, timeline, like um, how the research has stepped up since then.
1: Yeah, I think Erica can fill in more on this, but I'll just say, you know, from, uh, I remember the interview that you did with Leah and Greg uh, a couple years back, focused on pet and, you know, we've already been talking about it, but but really one of the next key directions was to look at this helper enzyme and- to get all the way back down to the monomer building block units, which as Erica mentioned, allow this bacteria actually to utilize uh, the terephthalic acid and the ethylene glycol. Um, You need both enzymes in order for it to catabolize those. And also if you want the monomers back uh, in order to do say any catalytic process, now you have them as well if you have this helper enzyme. And then just doing that work to understand how they work together at different loadings of each at different total loadings of enzyme and also different processing conditions all of these are key to taking this from sort of an enzymatic novelty an enzyme that eats plastic towards something that could actually be deployed and actually make an impact on the world and on some of the problems that we see byproducts of plastic utilization so this paper is really it's a step in that progress toward making it something impactful.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great description. So I think ultimately our goal is to take this fundamental finding these, this is kind of basic research and build that up into an industrially relevant process where potentially plastic waste could be addressed on a larger scale, not at the bench scale, but, but really from your curbside recycling or from industrial waste, for example. And so this is just one type of plastic but the group has certainly been focused a lot on determining if this is feasible beyond the scale of a, an Eppendorf tube, for example, to something much larger, but then also looking at whether that's economically feasible and what would be the, the cost drivers in a process like this to take it from this small scale up to something that's potentially beneficial to um, the recycling community or the waste management community in general. And then to branch out from there to move further into other types of waste uh, rather than just a pristine PET substrate, for example. So those are several directions that we're exploring. But like Brandon said, this is just one step in that process. So we, we are working on lots of different directions at once now. But I would say beyond PETase, which is a, a lovely system, the Idianella enzymes, are, they offer a really good system for looking at the structure and the function. We can start to really look at the mechanism that's involved in this process. But then to use that as a comparison point to other enzymes that exist naturally that can do this as well. So what are the similarities and what are the differences? What can that teach us about potentially engineering an enzyme to do this better? And how can we apply that to other polymers, for example, that might be susceptible to biological degradation? So I think that's kind of the, the big picture moving forward to help build out that story some.
2: Would you describe, maybe just also in a nutshell, the experiment itself that, that you performed in, in being able to uh, delve out these details about this new character, Medace, and how it works with Petace and breaking down these classes?
3: Yeah, so I mean, I think that we can each describe our experimental design because obviously what Brandon has done as well is super critical for understanding how the system works, but In the wet lab, that's kind of my domain. And so what we really wanted to do is understand how MHADACE works on its own to begin with. And so part of what that required is to express and then purify this enzyme to get it into a pure solution by itself to really characterize what substrates it's able to break down, how quickly, uh, what are the limitations of that, and and once we have a good sense of how well it works, uh, we then explored... Lots of different mutations to see if we could improve activity or um, abolish activity to verify that the active site is indeed the predicted residues. So we characterized as well several mutants attempting to explore some of the n- natural diversity of similar fatty acid esterases. So that's one of the enzyme families that this belongs to. How similar is Mhedase to that the rest of the FAEs and, and how different? And so using these mutations, we could start to figure out what are the residues that give it this specificity for the substrate MHET versus not. But then the next step would be to understand how that works in the context of the system entirely. So MHETase by itself doesn't break down PET. It works on the polymers. So we're not going to see models disappearing from the environment or from, from a waste collection stream with just the MHETase enzyme alone. So the next set of experiments really focused on changing the ratio of enzymes present in a reaction mixture and comparing the rate of degradation and the extent of degradation that you would see over time with these different ratios. And what we found is that with PETase alone, the increase in enzyme concentration results in higher degradation extents. You add m at any level, you improve that. And then finding the optimal ratio between those, uh, we didn't necessarily pinpoint an optimal, but we found that as there's more enzyme of each type, the rate of degradation increased over um, an endpoint assay. So that's really exciting to see that while well, PET-ACE is very exciting on its own, uh, when friends are involved, it's a much more efficient process. And so there's not necessarily a perfect ratio that we identified, but perhaps there are some localization effects or depending on how they act, right? if you think about the, the PET-ACE enzyme interacting with the surface of a film, a polymer film, or some other solid substrate, and it's releasing small chunks into the aqueous phase, then you might have this second enzyme that's there to catch those small chunks to continue breaking them down. So We thought that it might be beneficial also to explore what linking the two covalently could do for activity. And This was a little bit of a long shot. There's never a guarantee that making a a large franken enzyme will do anything, but in this case, it turned out that by linking the two together covalently, it not only helped improve the stability of the enzymes, but it also improved the rate of activity on PET. So you can see higher activity on imet as well as on the solid substrate. So those were that's kind of a, a rundown of the biochemical process of characterization, and, and all of this was motivated by some. It, and mostly, it, it opened up more questions than we started with. So there's lots of new directions to go, but. Still, one of the deep fundamental questions is what is the mechanism at play here and how does that tell us about the evolution of this reaction and so i think brandon could speak better to those things
2: maybe uh dr Nar, you could speak to the motivation to use like why did you want to use computer simulation to investigate this system and maybe you could also speak to some of the biggest challenges that you encountered
1: yeah absolutely our group has been convinced for a very long time that coupling computer simulations with wet lab experiments, with crystal structures, and with various other you know, techniques is really powerful. And that each brings something unique to the table. And so we love publishing these big interdisciplinary, you know, big team, many author uh, studies where we're coming at things from a bunch of different angles. So we've been motivated to include computer simulations in our characterization and engineering efforts, you know, for a long time, even before we were working on plastic degrading enzymes. In this particular context, adding a dynamic complement to the static crystal structures was a big part of wanting to use molecular simulations. And to investigate reaction mechanisms, we had sort of in parallel a couple of Other studies where we were using uh, high-powered computational techniques to reveal detailed reaction mechanisms, both on a frulic acid esterase and also on the petase enzyme itself. And so sort of going at all of those in parallel, you know, we were interested in how do the energetics compare, you know, what is the rate-limiting step, and answering some questions that are either very, very difficult or impossible to answer with. Uh, experiment, given the space and time resolution that we have available to us in molecular simulation. And I'll give you one example of that. Uh, in between the first, so uh, these serine hydrolyse enzymes, of which both PETase and metase uh, are in that class of, that broad class of enzymes, there are two catalytic steps. And so one of the questions that's pretty natural to answer as you're coming at these trying to understand reaction mechanisms is after the first step, uh, is the product uh, released, in this case, uh, ethylene glycol? Does it stick around near or in the active site while the second step of the reaction mechanism proceeds, or does it float away? And this was an important question you know, when we were studying a cellulase enzyme several years back, cell 7A, just sort of a workhorse enzyme of industrial cocktails for degrading cellulose in the modern biorefinery kind of context. Similar question came up there and what was commonly thought of as the product from the first step floating away, actually it sticks around in the active site and is involved in the second step of the reaction. And so here in this case, you know, we were kind of coming in with that knowledge, interested to see what happens in between step one and step two of the reactions. And uh, And so one of the things we saw is that ethylene glycol actually Uh, leaves the active site in between step one and step two after it's cleaved off. Uh, And then step two proceeds, you know, absent of that ethylene glycol molecule. So those kinds of questions, you know, we can get at in detail uh, with pretty exquisite uh, time and space resolution with the molecular simulations. And the EXCEED resources are really critical in helping us to overcome some of the challenges and to really facilitate making that work possible.
2: What XSEED systems and services did you use for the study? And could you speak to how they helped you overcome some of these challenges?
1: Absolutely. We have been big users of XSEED resources for a number of years to solve a lot of different science questions using simulations and calculations. In this case, we used Thamping 2 and Comet and for software we use charm for system building it's really flexible and you know we love using it to build our systems of polymers uh, and or enzymes using and we use the charm force field as well for most of what we do for some of the longer simulation runs that were a part of this study we used Namd, and then we actually used amber for the qm reaction mechanism studies where we have the active site treated with the semi-empirical quantum mechanical uh, level of theory, and, uh, and then the rest of the enzyme and solvation treated with uh, classical mechanics. So we're using several different pieces of software there on those two machines and really having these reliable resources with such a high capacity, you know, in terms of the number of high performance nodes, professionally-administrated, that level of support that you mentioned is really essential to the science that we've been able to accomplish uh, on this front. And like I mentioned, our group has a really long history with these Exceed resources, accomplishing a lot on these allocations using a lot of the different tools that are available, and great support from the team at these uh, supercomputing facilities.
2: Would you speak to any other um, non exceed resources that you use for this study?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. Um, yes, uh, in addition to Exceed, we're we're really fortunate to have a, a great resource here, uh, actually housed at NREL. It's a it's a machine um, supported by the DOE Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, EERE. So that machine, uh, the the current machine is called Eagle, and housed at NREL. And we also utilize that as well for for some of our calculations and simulations. So it's um, it's a collaborative effort between those different resources.
2: Maybe stepping away from our the community of users of these supercomputers and maybe looking at society as a whole and the taxpayers who fund all this, could you speak to how fundamental research like this, looking into these, these interactions of these enzymes, how this fundamental research uh, relates to non-scientists listening?
1: Yeah, I think You know we we touch plastics every day and as we sit here and talk probably we're touching (laughs) multiple different items that are composed of plastics and they're amazing materials that basically facilitate our modern lives in a lot of different ways and even even as these amazing materials they have caused some problems with you know the the proliferation of their of their use uh, in basically all realms of society. And so there's an environmental impact as well of what to do with them uh, when their life is over, which for some items, like when we, in the context of PET, some of those items, their lifetime of use is minutes, uh, minutes long and yet last, it's estimated for hundreds of years out in the environment. And there's an environmental impact of that. and that environmental impact touches everyone, maybe not equally, but for ordinary people, scientists, non-scientists, we all have the same oceans and the same air and the same soil. And these plastics are being found in, in all of those realms and more. And there can be, you know, the research, the lines of research that we're going down show that there can be solutions to some of these issues through biologically based technology. And so we are working hard to explore what the potentials are, uh, are there and what advancements need to be made to actually make this uh, science into impactful technology.
3: I think uh, one more aspect to think about in this is that, like you said, nature always finds a way. And in this case, we're talking about a really rapid solution that nature has identified This is not a lot of years that this type of polymer or this type of material has existed on the planet. And yet there's still a way for certain microbes to have the capacity to degrade this. And I think that's really encouraging. But based on our characterization so far, this isn't the only answer. This isn't going to be a magic bullet that fixes fixes our situation and saves us from ourselves. This may be one of many solutions. And... I think the impact of this type of research is to spur creativity in the minds of the public, to, to remind them that this is an issue, um, but we haven't solved it, right? This isn't, this isn't going to be the end of this problem. There's still a lot of work to do. And so this is just one avenue to start ex- exploration, but it's not necessarily going to be a solution today or tomorrow, but maybe sometime in the future, and it, it certainly won't address all of the plastic that we've generated. And so I think in terms of impact, it's important to keep that in mind that we're working on this, but we, we certainly haven't fixed it.
2: Could you speak a little bit to um, what's next for this research? And also maybe, um, maybe uh, as a follow-up question to that, what would a solution really look like?
3: The perspective of developing an enzymatic degradation process or technology, there's so much still to do here. There, there are a few really promising studies that have been coming out in the last year or two, and there are some companies that have started to to truly make progress in this direction. Such that in the next few years, there really could be some enzymatic or biological processes for developing, or sorry, for for degrading certain types of plastic waste. But that that still is it's a question of scale. So. If you think about the actual amount of plastic that we're producing every year, and and this is all coming from petroleum products, so that there's a huge reliance on that and the economy surrounding that is really important to keep in mind. But we also have lots of other types of plastic as well. Uh, So I think in the next few years, we'll definitely start to see some technologies that are surrounding this kind of idea emerge, but there's still a lot of work to do here in optimization and achieving a scale that will make a real difference and not just be uh, like a demonstration. So, So that's one thing to keep in mind about directions that people are going, really working on turning this into something that could be applied. But I don't think that this will be able to address all of the plastic waste that we make. And there will be a lot of types of plastic that will not be susceptible to biological degradation. We have lots of different types of plastic, right? And there there's certainly going to be styles that won't be susceptible to this type of technology. And so other directions that our group is exploring, not maybe Brandon and I in particular, but other people in our, amongst our colleagues are looking at how to address perhaps those types of plastic that can't be degraded biologically. There are tons of other techniques with catalytic methods, thermo- and chemo-catalytic methods, uh, several other ideas. But... Beyond the scientific approach for all of this, there's certainly also the aspect of, of our, our own usage. What do we do? How are we using these products? Can we demand a change in this as consumers? And so that's always a part to think about as well, is that we can develop technologies, but there's also a question of our own per- personal use and, and our use as a society.
1: You asked about what the process might look like if this were to be deployed. And- and as Erica mentioned, some are already deploying it. Um, I just wanted to mention as well that one of the real advantages, uh, if we can get it um, to where it is um, viable economically, once you've considered all of the, the parts of what it would look like to construct a process, like a waste management, trucks are dumping off plastics that have been collected from the curbside and putting that into a process. That is economical for the the plant one of the advantages you have of doing this biologically is the breakdown to monomers gives you a lot of flexibility not only to recycle plastic and displace uh, that petroleum usage and divert waste from landfills or the environment but also the flexibility to produce either virgin quality brand new quality pet again and not lose it or compromise any of the performance attributes, which the current state-of-the-art technology of mechanical recycling does. But you also have the flexibility to not just recycle, but upcycle, use those monomers, build something new other than PET uh, that might have even more value than PET. So there's, there's a tremendous flexibility in this sort of paradigm of biological deconstruction of the PET or other plastics. And there's also a promise for upcycling into into more valuable product.
2: What's the most important thing that you'd like people to know about using simulation to solve the problem of plastic waste?
1: Well, our our team and our collaborators, we utilize a whole toolbox full of techniques to characterize and engineer enzymes for plastics uh, deconstruction. We mentioned uh, structural work a whole host of biological tools, uh, chemistry. And complementing these, simulation provides resolution at time and length scales that we just cannot get from other techniques, or at least would be very, very difficult to get. So detailed information about reaction mechanisms and dynamic interaction interactions at enzyme active sites are some of the things that simulation really brings uniquely to the table. and. Uh, I would add to that too that for me and I suspect for others as well that um molecular simulations stoke the imagination and invoke a creative element as well when you can watch the reaction happen watch the bonds that form and break watch what you know other enzymes, uh other residues are doing uh, near the active site really new lines of thinking are generated. And I think for me that activates a creativity that can be useful to generating new hypotheses. And when you have an amazing interdisciplinary team, such as we have on this paper um, and in this work, you can really go follow up on those simulation inspired ideas. So your creativity and inspiration that you've gained now from some of your simulation work can then go uh, be tested uh, by by the other techniques that we have available on our team and uh, and keep the innovation moving forward.
3: I would absolutely second that I think it's it offers as someone who does not specialize in that, I think it offers a lot of hypothesis generating information to go out and then test in a way that I do have expertise, which has which has been a really cool synergistic experience to
0: have as part of this team. You've been listening to Brandon Knott and Erica Erickson of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Supersized Science is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the hosts and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.